this edition of Back to Basics with guest pastor Char Broderson. Every week we're called to the table of the Lord to remember Him, to remember what He has done for us. But the question is, what does it mean to remember? Does it simply mean that we shouldn't let thoughts slip out of our minds? Does it mean we reminisce on the sufferings of Jesus so we feel really thankful or really awful? For many Christians, to remember is an ambiguous mental activity. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Char Broderson continues our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Join us as Pastor Char concludes his teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, in part two of a message titled, Instruction for the Worshiping Community, Living Out the Prophetic Vision. And now here's Pastor Char. I've got some funny stories about how I was holding on to communion years ago and I was just like, the cup is so small, my hand is so big. The cup is so small, my hand is so big. And I'm like, <clears throat> I just dropped it and just spilled it all over me and just, I missed communion. What is this all about? Well, let's talk about this meal and I hope by God's grace, we will capture the powerful significance of this practice and be transformed by it. Now, I believe the Lord's Supper points us backward and inward forward and outward. So backward and inward. In order to correct the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's Supper, Paul reminds them of the very night it all happened. Verses 23 through 25, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Paul first wants to take the church back to that very night to remind them what this meal is all about. It's about God's incredible grace, his life for our lives, his body broken for us, his blood shed for the inauguration of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper takes us back to the cross and helps us remain Christ-centered and cross-centered. Every week we gather, ideally, and are reminded, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, and be grateful this is my blood shed for you and for all human beings for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Every week we're called to the table of the Lord to remember him, to remember what he has done for us. But the question is, what does it mean to remember? Does it simply mean that we shouldn't let thoughts slip out of our minds? Hey, remember. Hey, just remember me. Jesus, does it mean we reminisce on the sufferings of Jesus so we feel really thankful or really awful? For many Christians, to remember is an ambiguous mental activity, but in the Bible, a call to remember, especially when tied to a covenant sign or ceremony, is a vibrant, 
powerful and participatory concept where we recalibrate our lives according to what is being remembered. We recalibrate our lives according to what is being remembered. We remember what Jesus did for us. We remember our sin, our shame, our brokenness, our alienation from God for his righteousness, for his purity, for his wholeness, for his sonship. He gave himself for us, for you, and you, and you, and you, and for me. Paul says, remember and calibrate your life accordingly. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he says this, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Or also in 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This incredible exchange through the grace of God, remember and recalibrate. I think about the words that Jesus said in John's gospel. You know, John's gospel has no breaking of the bread and passing of the cup, but it does have John 6, 56, and that whole section there where Jesus is speaking to the Jews and saying, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And he says there, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, the symbols of the Lord's Supper, abides in me, lives in me, and I live in them. See, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus offers us a kind of permanence, a permanent ongoing association and identity with him. He offers us to make our home with him and he with us. So the Lord's Supper then becomes this opportunity or invitation to trust and believe in, these physical, in this physical way by weekly reorienting our lives around Jesus, making him the center of our universe, making him our home and our soul identity. This is how we avoid theological drift. This is how we avoid spiritual amnesia. This is how we avoid abusing the Lord's Supper or just observing it flippantly. The act of the Lord's Supper doesn't just point us backward to that night, but it also points inward to our hearts, centering our lives around the person of Jesus Christ and finding our soul identity in what he has done for us. We're blood-bought we belong to Jesus. We are his purchased people. Frederick Bruner, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he asked this question, what is the Lord's Supper? And this is how he answers it. He says, it is the word becoming flesh again and again. It is the most earthy way that the heavenly Lord wants to be with his people. The sacraments are not a second way of salvation. They are simply Jesus's one way of salvation, scaled down, physicalized, individualized, simplified, and made concrete. 
from hearts to hands, from soul to body, from group to individual. Jesus knew that we need not only spiritual things, but also physical things in order to grasp him more easily, to come to him more specifically. He is giving himself to us in this fresh new way in order to humanize and personalize his coming to us and to particularize our coming to him. The Lord's Supper is a repeated altar call to ongoing conversion, to fresh recommitments and entrustments of oneself to the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Wow. I mean, what a beautiful picture. Every week we gather. I mean, we don't have the physical table laid out. We might one day, we'll see. But just picture with me, the Lord sitting at the table and he is inviting anyone who will hear, come sit at my table, feast with me, feast on my life, take, eat, and be thankful this is my body that is broken for you. Take, drink, be reminded that you have been washed, purchased by my blood. Be a guest at my table. Be one with me. Be at home at my table. What an incredible invitation. I think about just our unworthiness. We are shamed and broken, paralyzed by sin, and yet we are invited to the table of the Lord. And as we sit at the table of the Lord, all of our sin, all of our brokenness is covered. It's healed. Communion or the Lord's Supper should be observed, I believe, this is my conviction, you don't have to share it. I believe it should be observed weekly because it is one of the only participatory acts we do in our gatherings besides corporate singing and praise. It is a physical act to align our bodies with our hearts and our heads with our Savior. It is a whole person act aligning and dedicating ourselves to the way of Jesus. So the supper looks backward, it looks inward, but it also points forward. See, the Lord's Supper points us forward to the kingdom of God. You remember Jesus said to his disciples on that night that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it anew in the kingdom. Now, Paul follows that same idea here, and he says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We anticipate the kingdom, the coming of the king. Now you see from these two passages that the Lord's Supper is to be a picture or a foretaste of the kingdom. While it recalls and summarizes Christ's death, his burial and resurrection, the feast also looks ahead to the feast in the kingdom or the marriage supper of the Lamb. James K. Smith, quoting Peter Lightheart, says, the Eucharist or Lord's Supper should be understood as a sign of the renewed creation The Eucharist is our model of the eschatological order, a microcosm of the way things ought to be. Now, this goes back to what we said in the introduction, the church being called to the proleptic vision. But what what does that look like specifically? To take the bread and the cup in anticipation of the kingdom of God as a foretaste, as a foreshadow. Well, think about this. The bread and wine are freely distributed to all who are in communion. This itself anticipates the abundance of the kingdom of God. 
The prophet foretold, come everyone who thirst, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. This is a picture of what the kingdom of God will be like. So the Lord's Supper is a small picture and foretaste of the justice and righteousness that characterizes the coming of the kingdom of God, where none will grow hungry because of poverty or alienated labor. No one will hoard a surplus because of selfishness or self-indulgence, leaving others lacking. As in the Lord's Supper, Bread and wine are freely and equally distributed. The Lord's Supper gives practice to us for such kingdom economics. When we do it, we enact a foretaste of the way things ought to be, the way things will be. I'll talk about this in just one moment, my last point, and then we'll close. But think about recalibrating our lives is what this meal is about, but it's also then about moving forward into this kingdom vision. And so as we're recalibrating our lives, then it would beg to reason that we are thinking about the poor and the needy among us. We're thinking, how can I live the life of Jesus and help others? How can I sacrifice for those around me? It breaks me out of my social circle, my who's who, who I know, who I'm comfortable with and familiar with, and reminds me that that is not what church is about. That's not what God's people are about. This is a family of service. This is a family of sacrifice. This is a family of one another's to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The Lord's Supper points us to that kingdom vision of abundance and generosity and compels us, live this out now. Lastly, it points outward to be reconciled to one another. So it doesn't just give us the proleptic vision, but exhorts us live the proleptic vision. The Lord's Supper is a feast of forgiveness and reconciliation, not just of us with God, but for us to one another. It is a table in the presence of would-be enemies, but also a table where God sits with those who were once enemies, but now have been reconciled made one in him. Do we think about that when we take the bread and the cup? Who gets to sit at the table of the Lord? Do you know that even among Jesus's disciples, there was a, let's just call him a conservative. There was also a radical, progressive, Simon the Zealot. There was such a wide range of personalities, and I would even say political convictions, even at the table of Jesus, that last meal. Judas is probably the only disciple that was formally educated. And then you have a tax collector 
You have Simon the Zealot, then you have Peter and John and James and Andrew, the fishermen, the lower class from Galilee, and yet they are all at the table of the Lord, invited to be one in him. It is a table of would-be enemies who have been reconciled, made one in Messiah Jesus. The supper is a gracious communion with a forgiving God, but it's also a supper that we eat with one another, and this will require forgiving and being forgiven. Just as Jesus admonishes us to be reconciled to our brother before leaving our gift at the altar, or our sister, might I add, so too Paul admonishes the Corinthians to examine themselves before partaking of the Lord's Supper. And from the earliest practices of the church, the discipline of reconciliation has been connected to the Lord's Supper. For how can we, who have been freely forgiven of all sin, great and small, withhold forgiveness from one another? How can we say, oh, Jesus I remember you, and yet be like the unforgiving servant who will not forgive the small debt of sin. How can we do that? See, it's anything, any sort of lifestyle that is out of line with the self-giving, sacrificial way of Jesus. John the Apostle reminds us we love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, yet hate their brother or sister are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You are deceived. This is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. James K. Smith again says, in a broken world, the church is called to be the first fruits of a new creation by embodying a reconciled community that gathers irrespective of preferences, tastes, class, or ethnicity in order to pursue the common good. And the way we begin to learn that is at the Lord's table. The habit of examination and reconciliation are meant to be like training wheels, meant to let us try out forgiveness and reconciliation. We're practicing for what we will be. It's a discipline, it's a habit that we practice, that we observe so that we might truly live it out. We see how this outward approach that I'm talking about here also anticipates the kingdom of God, where God's shalom, his peace, will cover the earth, where nations will no longer learn war and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The church is to anticipate the peace of the kingdom now in our community relations. Now, of course, it's not that we will ever perfect this in our lifetime. Forgiveness and reconciliation are lifelong projects. But if Christ, whom we want to love supremely, offers his body and blood equally to us, how can we not want to want to love, forgive, and be reconciled to one another? 
I do believe there are sins so great that we have to say, Lord, I want to forgive. Help my unforgiveness. I give both my forgiveness, my willingness to forgive and my unwillingness to you. And I give it to you again and again and again. As often as it comes up, I lay it on the altar. As often as it comes up, I nail it to the cross of Jesus, saying this will not define me. This will not keep me from the forgiveness and wholeness that Jesus offers me. I will not let the bitterness of sin done to me define me. The Lord's Supper helps us, it reminds us, it recalibrates us to do exactly that. It reminds us of where we've come from, forgiven, healed, supremely loved, and where we are ultimately heading. Wholeness, abundance, and the shalom of God. That's what this meal is meant to do. And I pray that more and more we will become a church that centers our community around Jesus' sacrificial death for us. You know, I, I often hear people say, oh, I love my church because of the community that's there. But I don't often hear people talk about, I love my church because of the spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation that is there. We have conveniently used denominations and local churches to support our lack of forgiveness and reconciliation. Rather than allowing the table of the Lord to speak in the powerful way that Jesus wants to speak to us, we leave. We don't have the hard conversations. We don't walk with people through the difficulty. We just go somewhere else. How amazing would it be if we lived out this vision so that the world around us, as I talked about this last week, that is taken hold of cancel culture, learns that there is a better way. There's a greater way in a way that will not pull away from our human wholeness, but will only increase it as we apply the broken body and shed blood of Jesus to real sin and brokenness that we actually live out the gospel and see how God's grace is greater than all of our sin. As Paul says, for where sin abounds, grace abounds much, much more. What if? I pray that we will become a church with this kind of reputation. A church where the forgiveness and reconciliation of the Lord Jesus is lived. And now, let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. An important aspect of the Christian life is understanding that we are in a spiritual battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, the Apostle Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 6, but we 
are in a war against these principalities and powers, against these spiritual beings. And so I've written a book that was at one time entitled Spiritual Warfare, but in the updated version, I changed the title to The Powers of Darkness and the People of God. And I think this is such an important book. So many of us go about experiencing the what is really the attack of, of the devil, but we don't even realize that that's what's going on. So this book will inform you not only of how to detect when the enemy is at work, but also of how to combat the various schemes of the enemy to mess with us and to undermine our faith and to just basically make our lives miserable. So I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of The Powers of Darkness and The People of God. Again, this month's resource is a book titled The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Brian Broderson. You can order the book The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Brian Broderson. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll return tomorrow with more valuable insights as Pastor Brian resumes our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.